Lord, even as we come before you, our hearts and minds are thinking about many things. And one thing that I confess is on my heart is what must it have been like for the disciples to to see you crucified and then to see you laid in a tomb and then to go through that whole next day on day seven and to see that their only hope of life and their future and they gave up their careers and their jobs and they followed you and you were in a tomb. Their hopes were dashed. They were they were confused, perplexed and and God, what must it have been like for them? And and the whole world was hanging in the balance at that moment. Would Jesus come out? Would you come alive? Would you raise yourself from the dead? And praise God, you did. And the whole world is different because of it. And that's why we're here, Lord. We're here to celebrate that fact. So God, move in us today. Let us feel... The power of this. This is truly epic in the deepest sense of that term. There is nothing more important than this. All of history is divided along the lines of he is risen. So we we pray that even as we look at this word here in John chapter 11 that the spirit would come. We need that. So let Jesus just be so elevated in this text. So glorious. So magnificent to us. That we are affected, changed immediately, and then forever. We lean on you for this and ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a visitor today, we want to welcome you as uh, one of the pastors of our church. We're really thankful that you're here and uh, glad that uh, you were able to be a part of us this morning. If you're watching on the internet, if you are uh, in the overflow room, thankful that you're here as well. And, you know, I don't know why you decided to come this morning. I could never really know that, ultimately, the motivation behind that. But I think it's probably safe to assume that all of us are here probably for a little bit of a different reason. Um, We've come for different reasons. Some of you are here because, for you, this is a family tradition. It's Easter. And for others of you, you consider yourself to be religious, and you go to church every Sunday. And that's just something you do. Some of you may may be here this morning because you feel like you were... Um, maybe guilted into coming and being a part of this service. Uh, Many of you are here simply because you love Jesus and you deeply love him and you want to worship him this morning and you want to worship with his people. But whatever the reason is for you being here, the fact is we're all here and doing something with Easter. I mean, you came here, you made that decision. And uh, if you're unchurched, You may be surprised by what you find if you visit enough churches. Some of you have probably, no doubt, created a profile in your mind for what you think a typical evangelical church is. You know, and for many of you, you may be thinking it's a kind of a middle class, largely white uh, group of people who read the Bible all the time, come to church and, and are constantly shouting out hallelujah or something like that. Maybe they listen to Christian radio. Now, I can imagine how strange it would be for you uh, to walk into church for the first time and watch people close their eyes, raise their hands, and sing songs about a man who hung on the cross 2,000 years ago. 
I mean, that's kind of weird. And that would be a weird deal for most people who have never been to church. And think about it for a moment. If you're a Christian, you're a believer, you're used to this. Let's just be honest about what we do. Okay? The alarm goes off on our weekend when work's done. And what do we do? We get up early on the weekend and we're all free and we come to church and we put on a set of clothes that we don't normally wear and we come to a building and we stand around and sing songs. Now that's strange for most people. And if you're not a Christian, you might be tempted to think, well, this whole thing seems like a spectacle. You know, people are crying and they're praying for long periods of time. Uh, They're singing songs about a bloody sacrifice. And they seem, and some people even seem to be happy about it. I look over and I see some guy smiling with his eyes closed as he's singing about some sacrifice. You know, and, and, and it's strange for people. That is until you understand what all this is about. So what is it that occurs in the heart of a man, whether he's brilliant intellectually or whether he can't spell his own name, whether the guy's worth millions Or whether if you put all of his money together, he couldn't buy us a pack of gum. What is it that goes on in a a white person, in a black person, whether he's Hispanic or Asian? In other words, what would make an intelligent Ph.D. raise his hands and with tears streaming down his face sing to an invisible God? I mean, that sounds like something only uneducated, possibly barbaric people would do. And besides, we're not a group of tribal people. We live in the West, and we're not living in a third world country, and we're intelligent. We can deductively think. We can systematically reason. We don't live in a culture of ignorance. And yet, look at us this morning. Here we are gathered in this building, singing songs to a man who was hung on a cross. How did that happen to us? Who is this Jesus? And why are we so enamored with him? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And I want to do that by looking at a powerful account of something that happened in the Bible. And I hope for some of you this morning that you'll discover who Jesus is uh, for the first time. I want to introduce you to Jesus by taking you to John chapter 11 and showing you who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And the reason I want to do that is because it's not enough for Jesus to just be kind of a nice story for you. Okay? Jesus isn't neat. He's not just some famous person. He didn't claim to be a good teacher merely. Jesus said he was the son of God. Now, the question is, do we believe him? Well, I hope that by the end of this morning you will believe him and i trust that through the word of god that we will see jesus and discover who he really is and why we need him here's what i want to do okay i want to ask two questions this morning in john chapter 11 i want to ask two simple questions one how should we come to jesus and two why should we come to jesus very simple questions okay how should we come to jesus now, before we get cranked up, let me bring you up to speed with what's going on here. Verse, verse 1, John chapter 11, says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was, Mar- it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother 
was Lazarus. All right, so here we have a man named Lazarus, and he's got two sisters. And he's sick. He's really sick. And these sisters are hoping that Jesus would come and heal their brother. Now, this Mary, um, you may be wondering, who's this Mary? There's seven Marys mentioned in the New Testament. And this Mary is the one, it says right here in the text, who anointed Jesus. It's the one who, with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair. Okay? So some people actually would suggest that this is the woman uh, forgiven of adultery or the immoral woman in Luke chapter 7. Now, we can't be sure of that. We don't know that for certain. But what we do know is that Jesus is very close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, that's clear because whenever Jesus came to Jerusalem, we see Jesus staying with these, uh, with these siblings. Um, and so they sent for Jesus and they say, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. So there's a there's a there's a relationship already established there. Now at this point, Jesus is a couple of days away. Uh, we know that from later in the passage, but Lazarus must have been quite sick. I mean, because they're not going to send a messenger two days to get Jesus if he's got a cold or a flu. So he's really sick here. This is a serious situation. But notice what Jesus says in verse four. Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we could spend a lot of time on that verse, because there's a lot there for us about why God brings dark circumstances into our life, and fundamentally, it's for his glory. Fundamentally. And here, Jesus says, though, and I love the NIV translation, which says, this sickness will not end in death. Which means, ultimately, the sickness won't end in death, ultimately. Okay, so, now in verse 4, the question is, did Jesus say Lazarus wouldn't die? Did he say that? Did Jesus say Lazarus wouldn't die? No, he, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He said that his sickness wouldn't end in death. He didn't say that his sickness wasn't fatal. Jesus' point is that, ultimately, it won't end in death. Okay, so, now here's the problem. Jesus is going to call Martha and Mary to walk by faith here and not by sight. And, and think about how hard this must have been. Jesus sent uh, Mary and Martha a message saying that this sickness will not end in death. And these sisters would have been deeply grieved and, and super emotional. But still, Jesus is calling them to hold on to what he said. And it's hard to walk by faith. And, and not by sight in the midst of, of a crisis. You're in the hospital room. Someone you love is laying there on the bed. And you're wondering if they're going to make it. And somebody comes to you and says, walk by faith. But everything in you is screaming out, I am really, really concerned about this situation. And how often do we react based on how we feel instead of what God is telling us? And, uh, friends, God's, God expects us to make decisions and, and react to situations based on, on what His Word says and, and not on how we feel. So you can imagine how hard this would be for Mary and Martha. And I'm sure if you saw them, you would see a depressed spirit, a, a disquieted spirit, a real feeling of hopelessness. Jesus isn't coming. They've requested Jesus to come. So they're probably thinking it's over. I mean, there's, there's no hope now. They, they must have been thinking this because... Two times, both Mary and Martha say to Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, both Mary and Martha say that. In other words, it's, it's over. 
By the time he's dead, for sure, it's over. It's too late. It's a lost cause. But you know what? Even if it looks like a lost cause, it's not over. And I wrote this down. It's not over until Jesus says it's over. I want to write that down. It's not over until Jesus says it's over. And how many sleepless nights, friends, could we avoid if instead of resting on our own feelings, we would rest in God's word and God's plan and God's time? Instead of basing our emotional health and our well-being on just what we can see with our own eyes. Now, I love this next part because in the midst of, of all their pain and sorrow... News arrives here that Jesus is on his way. And, and so Jesus is coming and suddenly the text is, is it, 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 it leads you to think this, that suddenly it's like Martha just hopped up and she heads out. Before Jesus even reaches the house, Martha's gone. Like she's already on the street going to meet Jesus. So verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Now notice Martha's disposition. This is the first thing I want to tell you this morning about how we should come to Jesus. Okay, number one, how should we come to Jesus? Here's the first thing. We should come to Jesus with anticipation, with anticipation. See, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she couldn't even wait for him to arrive. She immediately went out to meet him. What that shows is eagerness and, and a real anticipation that Jesus can do something. He's the he's the kind of guy that can actually fix this situation. And so I'm running out. I'm going to meet him. I, I, there's no time to waste. I've got to find Jesus. There's an urgency here with her. God's giving her a fresh opportunity to express her faith. And you know what? This morning, God's giving you a fresh opportunity to express your faith. Let, let me tell you something. Jesus is here. Jesus is with us. We are gathered to worship a living Jesus. The only question is, friends, is do you believe that? We've been singing about it. We've heard it. We've listened to it read. But do you believe that? And when you hear somebody say that Jesus is alive, what emotions are being stirred in you? What, what are you feeling right now about that? Are you feeling anticipation? Are you feeling any hope about that? What, what, what emotion does that evoke in you? See, for Martha, it evokes a real, a real anticipation. I want to see Jesus. I want to go out and meet him. So that's what we see here. Um, That's what we need to ask ourselves. What do you think about Jesus? Okay, these people, see, people who come to Jesus with anticipation are people who get help. Jesus blesses those kind of people. Let me show you a great example of this. Flip over to Matthew chapter 9. It's a great a great story here, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is walking around, and during his ministry, um, he's performing miracles. And so people are following him, and people are starting to believe, look, this guy is not any ordinary guy. Powerful things are happening with Jesus. So Matthew chapter 9, look at verse 27. So here's Jesus, and it says, As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud. These guys aren't whispering they're crying you know here's what they're saying have mercy on us son of david so when he he that's jesus entered the house the blind men came up to him and jesus said to them do you believe that i'm able to do this what's this 
Well, presumably, heal, heal their blindness, right? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And notice the answer. I love it. It's just so simple. Yes, Lord. <laughs> love that. Then he touched their eyes, saying, now check out these next words. According to your faith, be it done for you. What trial are you going through this morning? What darkness are you in this morning that makes you scream out for Jesus? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on my family, on my marriage, on my broken down situation. Son of David, help me. Dear Jesus, God, help me. What, what, what situation are you faced with? And Jesus says here that according to their faith, it was done for them. The only question here, folks, is this. Do you actually believe Jesus can fix it? Do you believe Jesus can fix your greatest problem, your deepest struggle, which is ultimately, friends, it's sin? And, and so this is, this is amazing here. And when Jesus comes, the arrival of Jesus, what it does here with Martha is it gives her a fresh opportunity to express her faith. And, and we have a fresh opportunity to do that. And the question is, do we believe it? Okay, so that's how Martha came to Jesus. That's the first thing, anticipation. Here's the second thing. We should come to Jesus with all of our imperfections. All right, you'll see this in Martha too. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now just think about the struggle of that statement. Because it contains both belief and unbelief. And and I love that because it reminds me that I don't have to get it all cleaned up before I come to Jesus. Martha's coming to Jesus and she is really, really struggling inside. And she's almost, you can almost feel a sense of kind of almost um, anger with Jesus or bitterness. Why didn't you come here? Look, you're late. And if you wouldn't have been late, Lazarus would have been saved. So you can, you can... You can feel the, the, the struggle here of unbelief and belief with Martha. And, 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 I, and he comes to him, and we can come to him with all of our sin, just the way we are, and all of our imperfections. And here's the great thing about Jesus. Look at his response. Does Jesus send Martha away? Does he get angry at her and say, what's wrong with your faith? Is, is that what Jesus does? No. Jesus listens to her with all of her imperfections and sins. And aren't you glad that Jesus listens to you and will listen to you this morning? And Martha comes to Jesus, and so she just speaks her heart. I mean, her heart is so raw. It just comes out. And Mary says the same thing to Jesus in verse 32. So, you know what? I think it's probably safe to assume that when Jesus was gone, they're probably talking with each other saying, what's wrong with Jesus? Why isn't Jesus here? We called for Jesus. Jesus hasn't showed up yet. Lazarus is dying. Where's Jesus? So finally, when Jesus shows up on the scene, Martha makes a beeline for Jesus and says, where have you been? If you would have been here earlier, my brother would have been saved. And you can imagine them talking about this. Why didn't Jesus come? And why hasn't Jesus come? And time is running out. And where is Jesus? And Lazarus is dead now. And why didn't Jesus come? So when Martha finally sees Jesus, the first thing out of her mouth is, what have you done? What's wrong with you, Jesus? 
the honesty here. You, you can feel the emotion. But here's the thing. Her statement is mixed with belief as well. Because Martha actually believes not only that her brother could have been saved, but think about the positive side of that, that Jesus has the power to have saved him if he wanted to. All right? So this is, this is, you, can, you can see that she also has faith in Jesus. Okay? The problem is that it's hard to ignore what's right in front of you. And according to verse 17, Lazarus is dead, and he's already been in the tomb for four days. Now, what's the significance of four days? Okay? Um, let's just say a quick word about this. The rabbis believe that in some superstitious teaching that said that a spirit of a person would hover over that person for three days after that person's death. So they would pronounce a person dead, but then they would wait for three days to see kind of if something would happen to that person. So Jesus waits four days, and I find it interesting that he delays long enough so that when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's going to display his very power. See, after four days, it would have been considered a done deal. This guy's dead. He's not coming back. But Jesus is about to prove how awesome he is by raising a dude that's been dead and in a tomb for four days. And nobody will be able to argue with that. Nobody. So, so back to Martha in verse 21. She, Martha says to Jesus, and you can just imagine her heart breaking and all the miracles that she had seen and, and what she knew Jesus could do. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, where's the faith in that statement? I want you to see the positive side of it. See, she's saying that if Jesus wanted to, he could have kept Lazarus from dying. And then she goes on to say, look at verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. You see what's happening? Her faith is actually being strengthened as she's spending time in Jesus' presence. Her faith is being strengthened. And that's the third thing we learned about how we should come to Jesus. We come first with anticipation. We come secondly with all of our imperfections. And thirdly, how should we come to Jesus? We should come to Jesus with a childlike faith. She's like, what you would say to her, you're living in a dream world, man. This, look, Lazarus has been in a grave for four days. Martha, you're living in a dream world, but she she has a dream because she believes that Jesus can really do something. See, her childlike faith here is coming out. Martha's going to get something from Jesus. She has faith. She may be coming to Jesus with her imperfection, but she's also coming with his childlike faith. Even now, I know that it's not too late. You know why, friends? Because it's not over until Jesus says it's over. Praise God. Her faith here is incredible. She confesses her trust in the absolute power of Jesus and the infinite goodness of God. And in the midst of her sorrow, to me, I I just think it's overwhelming. It's amazing, her faith. To express that kind of faith in Jesus, that he's able to do all things despite the fact that her brother has died. That's breathtaking. But see, she displays confidence that even now, with a dead brother, it's not too late. What's she doing? She's hoping beyond hope. And only Christians can do that. What about your life? What will you do when the problem is growing? When the prayers are rising, but the provision is not coming? What will you do? 
Will you, will you listen to God's word or will you crumble under the weight of your own feeling and, and your own ability to see and assess the situation? See, what we need are we need to be people who are willing to go to God with a childlike faith and say, even now, I know it's not too late. It's not too late for your marriage. It's not too late for your child. It's not too late to be forgiven by God. You know what? He knows everything that you've ever done. He knows your past. He knows all about you, but he's eager to display his greatness and his glory by saving even you. How could God love you so much? How could he love me so much? That's the great thing about Jesus. He loves dirty, messed up people. He loves the broken down and the tired and the sick and the hurting. And, you know, he loves the reckless sinner. You may have come here this morning and you don't give a rip about Jesus. You know what? He knows that. And if and if you will be humble, he will save you and love you. Behold our Savior. This is Jesus. You know, some of you need to walk out of here this morning saying, I'm, I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm going to give my life to Jesus because I'm not going to keep living in my sin. I'm not going to keep living like this. I'm not going to just go to an Easter service once a year. I'm going to bow my knee to Jesus today, no matter the cost, because I want my sins forgiven. Do you see? He's offering you a benefit. He's offering you to have your sins forgiven. I want to be free for the first time in my life. And if that's you, if you're feeling that, if you're sensing that, I just want to say, just join us. Because that's what we're about. We're about getting free. We're about being free. We've come here, and the reason why we stand around, like I said at the beginning, and lift our hands and tears flow down our face is because we actually feel free. We know we're free. We are former slaves set free. And we know that Jesus is great, and we know that Jesus is marvelous. And so we come here because we just want to celebrate that and worship him and praise him. Now, I love how Martha says that, She goes on to say, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. You know what that means? That means that whatever Jesus asks of the Father, he gets. Okay, that's real simple. But that means a lot, and it's deeply comforting, especially when you think about it in light of Romans 8.34, which, you know what Romans 8.34 says? It says that Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for us. Whatever Jesus asks of the Father, he gets. That's big for us as Christians big for us because he's praying for us and what a comforting thought he's praying all kinds of things for us just go to john chapter 17 and look at all the things jesus is praying for us but my friend if you're not a christian uh, you're an enemy of god and your relationship with him is broken it's fractured and sin is keeping you from god and so the greatest thing you can ask of jesus is that he will help you restore your broken relationship with God. Uh, you need a mediator. You need someone to reconcile you to God. And the Bible's really clear on this, that there's only one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. Well, that's how we should come to Jesus, okay? Anticipation with all of our imperfections and a childlike faith actually believe that he can do something for you okay so why should we come to jesus look this is the final point why should we come to jesus well 
You know, the first and most obvious reason is again found in verse 21, where Martha says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, real simple. The reason why we should come to Jesus, number one, the first reason is because we need life. We need life. Now, that sounds obvious, but I want you to think about it in light of our situation. Death is all around us. Pastor Ted just prayed about a woman, a young woman in our school family who just died. Death is all around us. We live in a culture of death, in a world of death. Death is our enemy. And if you're a sinner like me, then I want you to know that death is really your enemy. Death is an enemy for all of us. But if you're not a Christian, death is big time your enemy. In fact, death has cast a shadow over all of us. And nobody can live a day without having to deal with death in some way, shape, or form. Listen, we have to work at staying alive. We do. You stop feeding yourself, you stop drinking uh, water, you stop taking care of yourself, and you're going to die quickly. Because we have to work to stay alive. And since death is something that we don't like, you know what we do? We typically do two things with it. First thing we do with death is we deny it. We don't ever talk about it. We, we avoid it. We, we never mention it. We're afraid to talk about it. And there's this awkward silence about death. And, and, and we, we, just, we just feel, we just clam up about it. And the fact is we all know it's true and we all know it's happening to us. But then what happens is we get fixated on trying to live longer. So look at all these health magazines. Look at all these nutrition guides. We're trying to live longer because why? Because we're afraid of what's coming. Why do you want to live longer? Ultimately, you want to live longer because you're afraid of the end. You think about this. We're afraid of what's coming, but it's not death that's scary. It's not laying on the hospital bed and breathing your last breath that's scary. It's the fact that after that last breath has been breathed, you're going to stand in the presence of God. That's the scary thing. All men will stand before God and all men will give an account. And for some people, that's an awful thought. Just awful. And so they avoid it, they deny it. Here's the other thing people do with death. They sentimentalize it. Psychologists are right. People that live in denial, uh, people that don't face their fears head on, are controlled by those fears. You know what? A lot of people are controlled by their fear of death. It can ruin a person's life. And so here's how people try to deal with it. They try to turn death into something that's normal. And it's something that's natural. We try to act like it's natural. We try to treat death like it's a friend. People say things like this. Well, death is just the final stage of life. Death is a peaceful thing. Death is a natural thing. I mean, have you ever been to a funeral where people talk like this? Listen, that's a lie. That is a lie. Death is not peaceful. Death is not natural. Death is terrible. You know it's terrible when it happens to you. And, and for us to tell ourselves otherwise is like putting lipstick on a skeleton. The only thing that does is make the thing more hideous and more scary. And we lie to ourselves. Oh, death is my friend. Give me a break. Death is not a friend. It has never been a friend to us. But enough about what the world says about death. What we need to hear is what the Bible says. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15... That it's an enemy. Paul calls it our last enemy. It's not friendly. We all know it. In fact, 
when you get into the presence of death, you know it's not your friend because it's ripping something from you. It's ripping your spouse from you. It's ripping your kid from you. You hate it. And the truth is, death only has power over those who are living in sin. If you're living in sin this morning, you're not repentant. You're not a Christian. If, you're, if, if that's you, then death has power over you. And if death has power over people living in sin, then it has absolute power over them. See, all men desire two things. They desire life and happiness. All of us. But death rips that apart. And that's just physical death. See, not, not to mention... That what happens when you get in, in, in the presence of God and you're eternally separated from him. So how do we escape this thing? How do we get away from death? Because, you know, there was once this town um, that death never touched, that death forgot about. I saw it one time in an episode of The Twilight Zone. The fact is, friends, in the real world, at some point, every man must bow his head to death. You can't make a bribe with it. You can't make a deal with it. If you want to live another hour because you feel like you need to get right with God, it's too bad. It's too late. Death doesn't care. And you know what? It's totally unmoved by your most pitiful cries. Death shuts its ears to our pleas. And no, mo- no man can postpone his death and his execution. There's a day in the mind of God that's circled on his calendar, and it's the day of your death. And he knows it. And there is no changing it. The question is, are you ready? And my answer to you is, friend, you will never be ready unless you are in Christ. See, only a Christian can say death is a defeated enemy. But oh, can we say that if we're Christians? Death is a defeated enemy. Only Christians can actually taunt death and say, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Only Christians can do that. I love Stuart Townend's song, The Power of the Cross, when he says, Now the daylight flees. Now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two. Dead are raised to life. Finished is the victory cry. Death is crushed to death. And life is mine to live. Praise God. What a great uh, what a great thought. Well, that kind of power is what Martha desperately wanted. But the reality is she's experiencing death and she's feeling death and she's seeing the painful reality of it and so she comes to Jesus with one last hope that maybe he can do something. And I love how this ends. Jesus responds to her in verse 23. He says very simply, your brother will rise again. Isn't that a comforting thing to Martha? She must be in shock. What do you mean he'll rise again? See, Mar- Jesus is great. He's encouraging Martha. But something happens with Martha where she clearly misunderstands this because to her, she thinks Jesus is talking about the resurrection on the last day. No- notice what she says. She says, I-, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, you know, when Martha hears those words, that would be like you hearing a pastor standing over a bed in the hospital saying to you, you know what, someday we'll see him again. Someday he'll have a new body. 
someday we'll get to be with him again. That's the kind of comfort Martha's feeling, which isn't that comforting, really, when you're in the moment. Okay, so Martha's, Martha's really not that comforted by this. And, and, and so she's just thinking about what's going to happen at the end of history. And you can just hear the disappointment in her voice. It's like she's saying, yes, Lord, I know. I know all about the resurrection on the last day. I know, Lord. Thanks. See, Martha's not greatly comforted. She's hoping for, you know what she's hoping for? She's hoping for something even now. She said that even now you can do something. And then Jesus says, he'll be raised up. And she's thinking it's the last day. And Martha's thinking, what happened to the even now? I had one small little piece of hope left. You know what it was? It was my even now hope. And Jesus just dashed it. And now, uh, here I am sitting here, and my last hope has been dashed. There's no hope now. She's hoping for life to break in and resurrect her brother, but he's dead All hope is gone, and with those words, Martha's last glimmer of hope fades away. Now all she's left with is the prospect of seeing Lazarus on the last day, which is good. She's thankful for that, but it's not what she was wanting. What a disappointing turn of events here in this narrative. Just when Martha thought there was a chance, it's broken, and Lazarus is dead. And what hope do we have this morning? Seriously. I mean, if death is our enemy and it's quickly approaching, what are we going to do about it? And what are we going to do about our sin problem? And can anybody break this grip of death and sin? Listen, folks, people are dying. Life is running out. Time is passing by. People are dying and Lazarus is dead. In fact, Martha wonders why she even called for Jesus at this point. Martha's thinking, why did I even hope in Jesus? And as the reality of her hopelessness begins to sink in, Martha hangs her head and begins to weep. But Jesus slowly lifts her head and says, Excuse me, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, you want to see life? I am life. You want to see your dead brother raised? That's easy for me. You don't need to hold on to an even now hope. You got hope all the time because you are standing in the presence of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Hallelujah. Look at Jesus saying here. I mean, let's run through that again. Look at verse 20, 24 and 25 again. This is great. Jesus says, uh, again in verse, 20, verse 24, Jesus says, <clears throat> Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is brilliant. It's, it's so climactic. It's so awesome. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. <laughs> I mean, is he bending the nail over or what? Friends, this is the ultimate reason why you should come to Jesus. 
Okay, come to Jesus, number one, because you need life. But here's the ultimate reason. Come to Jesus because he is life. (laughs) He is life. This is Martha for her. This is her hello moment. This is the light bulb going on for Martha. It's as if the whole world had stopped for her. And she saw for the first time through the eyes of faith that Jesus is life. He's it. And quite frankly, you know what that means, folks? That means that Jesus is kind of a big deal. (laughs) Jesus is a big deal. And that's why we're here this morning. And that's why people have been worshiping him for thousands of years from every country in the world, from every tribe and language and people and nation, because Jesus is a big deal. He is life. And as I said in my prayer, all of human history is divided into A.D. and B.C. because of Jesus. He's huge. He's everything. He's life. And the whole universe, the Bible says, is sustained by the word of his power. Everything is dependent on Jesus. Everything. And Jesus is eager here for Martha to know something way more fundamental than the resurrection on the last day. Jesus is saying, I'm glad that you have good theology. I'm glad that you know there's going to be a resurrection on the last day. But Martha, I've got to tell you something way more important than the fact that there's going to be a resurrection someday. I want you to know that wherever I am, there is resurrection power there. Wherever I am, there is life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. So this is not some abstract truth, friends. This is not some distant reality like maybe Jesus will help me someday. This is not, oh, you know, can Jesus do something someday? Hopefully, maybe. I mean, could he? No, this is Jesus saying, I am everything to you. I have always been everything to you from this day forward, from the day of your conversion to the last day. I am life to you. And for those of you who are not Christians, is Jesus looking at you and saying, you don't have any life. But look, I'm here. I'm available for you, and if you want to be free, and if you want to have life for the first time, all you have to do is say, Lord, I want your life. Give me your life. This is resurrection power, and it's right in front of Martha's face. And friends, Jesus, this resurrection power is right in front of your face. It's coming to you right now. I'm declaring to you resurrection power in Jesus' name right now today. He is here. Do you believe that? And Jesus says to her, he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because it's not enough to know it. You have to what? Believe it. And Jesus says to Martha, I know that you believe in the resurrection, but I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? You see what he's saying to Martha? I am. I'm it. Do you believe this? And Martha's response is much like Matthew 9 in verse 27. Look what she says. She simply says, yes, Lord. So thankful for that simple childlike faith. Yes, Lord. And then she expands by saying, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. In other words, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the one that, that, that we have been waiting for and hoping for. I believe you're the Son of God, which means I believe you're eternally generated. You, you are the Son of God. And I also believe that you are coming into the world. You are incarnate. You are God incarnate who has come to save us. I believe. Yes, I believe you are the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? 
You're there. You're listening to me preach. But do you believe this? We know Martha believes it. But what about you? See, it all comes down to what we believe about Jesus. That's how we receive eternal life. It's not about being a good person. It's not about being religious or going to church on Easter. Don't go to church to get a check mark from God. He doesn't do that. He doesn't offer any check marks. He offers his son. Go to church to get Jesus. That's what you need. Listen, we, we, we've come here not because we're trying to earn favor with God. We're coming here because we already have favor with God. That's, we're, we're celebrating. This is a, that's why I like referring to Sunday morning as Sunday celebration. Because it's a celebration every Sunday. And I heard one guy say this week, you know, that's why we preach Jesus here in the pulpit every week. And I heard one guy say this week that if you just, pastor, he's talking to pastor, he said, if you preach anything different on Easter, then you need to get a new job. You need to go sell shoes or something because every Sunday you should be preaching Jesus. And every Sunday you should be preaching the resurrection. So there's nothing new in one sense about this. We are preaching Jesus. We love to preach Jesus. And that's why we're here. So the only reason why we come back here week after week is because we love Jesus and we want to worship him. That's it. You know what? He is everything to us. What about you? Have you ever known to what extent love would go to bring you back? Have you ever known the price love paid to make you his? We are forgiven because he was punished. We are chosen because he was forsaken. We are free because he was bound. We are whole because he was broken. We are blessed because he took the curse. We are sons because he was abandoned. We are alive because he chose to die. But today, the body of Jesus is not cold with death's dew. Jesus is alive. And as John Mark McMillan put it, on Friday he was a thief. On Sunday he was a king. The firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ, laid death in the grave. So is that your hope? Or are you worshiping something else? Yourself or some other idol? Do you have any good things in your life become ultimate things? You know, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. It's an idol. And so you must put that down for Jesus because he demands all of your worship. So the bottom line is this. Jesus said he's the resurrection and the life. And the question I give to you and close with is this. Do you believe it? Seriously. Seriously. Do you believe this? Because if he's the resurrection and the life, then i got to tell you one more thing. Your only hope is in him. Shylin put it best. Here's what he said. This puts it in perspective. Elvis is dead. Picasso is dead. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. Marilyn Monroe is dead. Brando is dead. James Brown is dead. Princess Di and John Lennon are dead. 
Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Satya Sai Baba are dead. Nero is dead. Constantine is dead. Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great are dead. Napoleon is dead. Henry VIII is dead. Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden are dead. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius and Sennacherib are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. King Herod is dead. Caesar is dead. Caiaphas and Judas are dead. Pontius Pilate is dead. But Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what an awesome thought. Right now you are alive and you are reigning at your Father's right hand. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move so powerfully in our hearts right now with the reality of that thought that you are alive, that we would humble ourselves and bow our knee to you, Jesus. Oh, God, if there's any of us in here who have not bowed our knees to you, Jesus, then, Lord, through your spirit and power, let that happen now. Grant the gift of repentance. Grant the gift of faith. And may many people bow their knees to Jesus right now. The world's dying Death is reigning, but Jesus has conquered that death. For Christians, it is over. It is a done deal. And from his point on, forever we have hope in you. We praise you. What an awesome day this is. What an awesome God you are and Savior. Jesus is alive, and we praise you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.